It's October 26th, 2020. This is Rook. They are a dynamic duo in life and in work and in music who were both born in Iran but met years later in the diaspora. And their creative synergy is so strong, so prolific that you've undoubtedly heard their Middle Eastern-tinged alternative fusion, if not from their transcendent albums, then from the soundtrack work they've done for everything from The Matrix to Game of Thrones. Azam Ali and Logar Ramin Torquian are the driving force behind the award-winning group Niaz. And they join me together for a feature interview on their story, identity, music, and evolution. Niaz are here. This is Conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. there welcome to episode number 56 number 56 of rook hope you're doing well out there wherever you are we are on our continuing mission to build a new audio visual encyclopedia of iranian diaspora identity and we are coming to you on telegram Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Instagram, and YouTube. Hi, Groovy Shaya. Hi, Jian Jan. I'm going to be Hastin. Boshin. Hastin. If you don't speak uh, Persian, you're not missing anything from that exchange. <laughs> you're missing nothing. Uh, I'm very happy to have the guests that we yes, have coming on today, Shaya. Logar Ramin Torkian, amazing musician, uh, a guy who fuses traditional instrumentation with you know, new sounds and electronics, etc. He was one of the pioneers of the group Axiom of Choice that a lot of, yes. I think, Iranians in the, yes. in the diaspora might know or Middle Eastern folks, etc. And then Azam Ali who is, um, I mean, they're such an interesting duo, but her voice is this remarkable instrument, you know? Uh, have you followed Niaz over the years? They're, yes, yes. Uh, I, I, did you know Niaz when you were in Iran? Yes. Interesting. Yes, yeah. yes, and I I, 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 I'm always following them. And I thought of them as, because I'm, I saw them once at the Juno Awards, this is a few years ago, so I thought of them as a Canadian group because they spent some years in Montreal. Oh. But they, I mean, they're, who knows what they, how do we, I'm going to ask them where they identify as where they're from, but, but I know they met in California and they had a career in the States and then they moved to Montreal and now they're back in the States. Um, but of course their stories are remarkable. I mean, uh, Azam was in Iran and then India and then the U.S. and they end up meeting there, so... Um, Actually, when I first uh, uh, got introduced to them, I thought they are 
Indian band with Persian roots. Really? Yes. Then Interesting. I, then yeah. I searched about them and I figured out, oh, no, they're Iranian. Well, they do such a good job of fusing yes. different sounds exactly. that they could, I mean, maybe it's just, maybe it's even I- immaterial where they're from. You know, it's like they could be, uh, it doesn't matter because they're pulling from stories and sounds and sonic reverberations yes. <laughs> and poems from different parts of the Middle East and the world, yes. really. They, they, they had huge uh, impact on my musical career. They, hmm. uh, yeah. So, and is that good? Yes. Oh, <laughs> I guess you've done okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shia from Dang Show. Sometimes I don't tell people or people don't know that you're um, from Dang Show and uh, the band Dang Show and yes. they know Dang Show but uh, they and then they go wait that's the same Shia, Shia. <laughs> you know or Shion they sometimes call it. by the way I'm uh, uh, ask me how I'm feeling how do you feel hungry oh yes why and, well I'll tell you why I'll tell you why because you and I on the weekend we yes. went to a gathering at uh, Captain Reza has a special friend. Yes, yes. And we went there, yeah. And uh, does he have headphones? He, Give him he, the headphones, he, yeah. yeah. All right. So can you hear us? Hello, sir. Hello, sir. Yeah. Yes. That's uh, how you know it's Captain Reza. He's joining us. <laughs> Hi, I am Shaya. Hi, I'm Captain Reza. That's my impression of you guys. Anyways, uh, so Captain Reza, you know, we went to, you had a special friend who, right. and we went to dinner and- uh, You can say at, girlfriend. At their, oh, I didn't know if I could say that. Yeah. All right. I guess you Wow. Can. All right. This, uh, <laughs> this is breaking news. Hey. Yeah, this is- uh, Better here than any- than Rook breaking news. All right. So uh, we went to- to Captain Reza's uh, girlfriend's house, there was you know yeah. five five of us. It wasn't a big group tent, you know. We weren't contravening any uh, laws, <laughs> any <laughs> any social distancing laws, or and and we worked together anyway. But so we go there and. Um, and Captain Reza's uh, girlfriend, um, do I have to keep saying that? <laughs> she <laughs> get it. <laughs> she made uh, this great lubia polo, wow, right? Yes. And then, at the end of the night, she, in you know, they they uh, put a bunch of the lubia polo after I helped yeah. clean up, and Shia sat there, Actually, yeah, yes. and then uh, and in in a Tupperware, uh, which Reza brought today. And then I thought, oh, that's great. We're going to share the Lubia Polo. Um, and for those of you who are not Persian or are not super familiar with all, uh, Persian food, Lubia Polo can be described as delicious. That's what you need oh, to know. Yeah. That's all you need to know. It's delicious. And Reza, Captain Reza's girlfriend made very delicious food. So we, so we have this uh, Lubia Polo. So I was very excited. Because I saw it in the Tupperware on the desk out there, <laughs> and then then it was gone, Captain Reza. <laughs> it was completely it. gone, and I was like, "Hey, Shia, where's the rest of the Lubia Polo?" And he was like, "Oh, that is just for me," and, you know. And I was, <laughs> and I didn't Come know. On. I mean, was that only for him? Well, <laughs> listen, I, I for I forgot to took the. Uh, what do you care package what yeah, yeah, the, yeah doggy bag the, yeah I forgot yeah. to took it the, the that, that night yes so if I if I took it I, I would eat you mean it but you so you because they were going to give you the Tupperware <laughs> you just assumed that the Lubia Polo was only for you yes. it's okay it's all right <laughs> and that was I'll go to uh, the, the the pizza place on the corner and get something <laughs> I hope you enjoyed your uh, Lubia Polo 
Um, but uh, you were the topic of the conversation after you guys left. We were complimenting your washing skills. You, oh. you did the dishes immaculately. So thank, thank you. you very much. It kind of, I was yeah. surprised that it was such a big deal that I was doing the dishes. I know. You guys were so like, How, why are you helping? And I was like, isn't that what people <laughs> normally do at, at, uh, at dinner parties? You want to help and clean up? But, um, well, yeah, I wish I, I should have done more. I should have done some of the, the cooking, but it was great. Anyway, great food. I as I remember it, it's it's a, a long time ago, and I've had nothing since then <laughs> because I thought it was going to be shared, and Shia ate it all. So that's the end of the Lubio Polo, both literally and metaphorically. Um, the hub of all things Rook, the hub of all things Rook is our website, rookmedia.com. Rookmedia.com. You can go there uh, to find all of our episodes there and all the links to all our different platforms. It's a one-stop shop. It's all you need. Rookmedia.com. The latest Rook Read is now posted there. Uh, so uh, the last Rook Read was um, about Reza Rouhani. It's called Reza Rouhani and the Flight of Talent from Iran. Uh, uh, I think that's what it's called. Nagin, who has been blogging for us, has a new blog up there on the Rook Reads. On the last episode, we had a guest named Shima Mehri, who is a champion biker like a Harley Davidson biker uh, and she lives in Denmark and uh, Nagin found this very inspiring uh, as someone who without being overtly an activist or, or trumpeting that at all uh, Shima is breaking sort of Persian gender stereotypes and ideas of what you're supposed to do etc um, and um, Nagin's written a very interesting piece about how that what that brought out in her mm-hmm. uh, and so you go to our website rookmedia.com and go to the reads it says reads up at the top there and check out the um, the latest from Negin Dusti you can leave comments there as well uh, and subscribe there and link to all of our platforms there and our patrons page where you can donate or um, support however you want to rook all right I may be hungry but I'm looking forward to this interview um, you ready Shia yes Yes. Captain Reza, we got them on the on the. We got connected. Yes, all we right, are. All right, Good here to we go. go. Take a listen to this. little taste of the Iranian American Canadian group Niaz that's from 2015 and the song Sabzib on Oz you know while their combination is quite magical I am honored to have the two key elements of Niaz here at the same time today and it only makes sense to give them their own respective introductions first she has a career that spans over two decades and has yielded 12 collaborative and solo albums she is Azam Ali, a composer, songwriter, and singer whose voice 
voice, as you just heard there, has been described by Billboard magazine as a glorious, unforgettable instrument. And she's one of the most prolific singers on today's world music stage, as you might call it. She was born in Tehran, and Azam spent most of her childhood after the age of four, in the small town of Panjgani, India. She moved to Los Angeles in 1985 at the age of 15, and shortly after moving to the U.S., Azam fell in love with the Persian Santur and found her true calling in pursuing a career in music. Azam Ali formed the alternative group Vaz with percussionist Greg Ellis in 1996. Subsequently, in 2004, she co-founded Niaz, with her now husband, the Iranian-born composer and multi-instrumentalist Loga Ramin Torkian. So now let me introduce Ramin, a highly gifted composer and visionary in his own right. Ramin moved to the U.S. as a teenager after the 1979 revolution. He co-founded the successful alternative music group Axiom of Choice together with singer Mamak Khadem in 1992. Then Ramin joined with Azam and programmer-producer Carmen Rizzo in the mid-2000s to form Niaz. Considered by critics to be one of the most groundbreaking groups of their time and described by one media outlet as an evolutionary force in contemporary Middle Eastern music, Niaz blends medieval Sufi poetry and folk songs from Iran, the Indian subcontinent, and Turkey, and rich acoustic instrumentation with modern electronics to make their bold statement to a global audience. Since 2005, Niaz have performed in 22 countries around the world and have been featured countless times on BBC, NPR, The Huffington Post, MTV. Their music has also been featured in numerous major films and television productions, including The Matrix, Prince of Persia, Thor, Body of Lies, True Blood, Nip Tuck, Bones, Alias, Prison Break, Tyrant, Crossing Over, and many, many more. They are working on a new Niaz record and have their own solo albums to discuss these days as well. But first, right now, now, Azam Ali and Loga Ramin Torkian join me from Los Angeles today. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having us. You're going to pass out after reading all that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wasn't reading. It was all off the top of my head. My Just, goodness, <laughs> that, that was a lot, you know, and you didn't take that many breaths. Well, I don't, you know, there's way too much to talk about with you guys. Your, your respective <laughs> careers and all that you've done both together and separately is really impressive. Um, I'm so happy to have you both on Thank the program. You. I'm so we're happy honored to be here. And, you know, I, we're, we're fans of yours and... I've always loved you from a distance, so it's an honor for us. Thank you. Does Rami know about your love for me from a distance? <laughs> well, he does now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was going to say I'm happy you two are getting along well enough that you could do the interview sitting next to each other in Los Angeles. Great. <laughs> let me let me start there with where you are, your current home. Uh, you know, sitting from the vantage point of Canada, uh, and you guys would know this since you lived in Montreal for a while, and looking at what's happening in the States in a contemporary sense, how how is life in the time of pandemic, fires, uh, presidents with author authoritarian instincts, uh, racial protests in the streets? What, what's it been like to be in L.A. in recent weeks, Azam? Oh, my goodness. It's so, you know, it's 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 surreal for us because... Every time we move, even we keep moving countries. We're trying to make something work, and it's just not happening. And I think, you know, we 
came to America, then we tr went to, we were not happy here, we went to Canada, then didn't work out there, and we came back here. But we ha followed this strange trajectory where every time there's a good president somewhere, we leave that place, and then <laughs> when we come back, <laughs> you know, so our timing is just, has never really been good, you know. Uh, so, you know, as soon as we left Canada, then that's when Trudeau came in and, you know, and then we came here and then now we have Trump. But it's kind of, I think, very chaotic is the only word that comes to mind. It's It, it feels like, a st like we are in just a state of chaos in the U.S. right now. Actually, I think the biggest problem right now is that it's very polarized. I mean, beyond belief. I lived in the United States since 1979, and I never, ever remember so much social tension. And, and that's in a city that it's so diverse, you know. And one thing that I always loved living in Los Angeles, despite of all the problems that it has, I never felt uh, as a foreigner here. And there was always a certain diversity that welcomed anybody that came. You could find your place. But right now there's so much social tension that it's just uh, unbelievable. You know, clearly there are a lot of Iranian Americans that not only don't mind Trump, but intend to vote for him next week. We, we've heard from some of them, but I'm sure what you're saying echoes in a lot of people's minds listening around the world. Those of us in Canada, for example, those, those of us living outside the United States or even living there. Uh, I had a dear friend of mine who used to live in Canada is now in California and has little kids say to me recently, I think I want to return. I'm not sure I can continue to live in a place with my kids where the president oversees a ban on our people, on Iranians, especially if he wins again. I know you guys have a son, Iman. You you have the comfort, I suppose, of a very diverse city in Los Angeles and there being a Persian community, a sizable one, so he will see and hear people who look and sound like him. But if Trump wins a second term next week, do you worry about bringing a kid up in this environment? Well, that was one of the reasons we moved to Montreal when he was two. We we wanted him to grow up in a smaller community and um, have a have a bit of you know one thing we had in Montreal which we really miss is just just that connection. You walk everywhere, neighbors. You sit outside. Your neighbors walk by. They say hello. They sit down and talk and then stay for hours. So we wanted him to have this experience that is virtually impossible to have in. Los Angeles. I think that at the end of the day, you know, the values that you instill in your child are really formed within your home. And, um, and also the extra education that you provide to, to them, you know, so for Iman, we supplement his school life with, you know, he plays cello beautifully, he's, 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 you know, learning Kung Fu, he, he has so much supplemental education so so that's kind of my our our approach is that you know we, we we don't expect it to come from the landscape of los angeles because it's just not going to happen it's just not the the city was not built for that you know i mean at the end of the day this is a capitalist country it's it's not designed for for 
raising children in that sense. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? It does make sense. I mean, it's also interesting that your first answer to uh, when I said, what's it like to be living there? As you said, well, we're still trying to figure out where where to be, uh, you know, (laughs) where whether we should move, which country we should move to next, uh, which suggests you're in this state of of yearning, yearning for the next place. The name of your band is Niaz, which which means yearning. And I wonder about... uh, one would think when you started the group, you, you you know, that would mean something in terms of the intentions of this band or the place you were at in life then. But I wonder if you mean it in a more global sense that we are always yearning for something. Has the meaning of the name of your band changed over the years, Ramin? I think uh, you're absolutely right. You know, I don't think about it anymore consciously as much but there is always that sense of being displaced and you know i came here when i was 14 you know i mean i lived here most of my life and yet whenever we travel to turkey whenever whenever we travel to somewhere that has certain resemblance of iran the way that i remembered it then something shakes inside me something churns and therefore i do realize that Although that I'm not conscious about it, that sense of yearning, that sense of wanting to belong, is there and it would always be there. It would never change. in that sense yes but i think in terms of our music we really referred to that in terms in a more of a spiritual yearning something that you want to uh, dedicate your life to some sort of a transfer inner transformation do you think that 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 the first category that you talked about that sense of wanting to find a home do you think that that's a a product of being immigrants or do you think in other words do you think that there are people a few miles down the road from you who've lived in the United States for centuries or decades who have a different feeling or do you think all people feel this sense of yearning and wanting to find a place to belong? I think for me it's the latter. I think for me I would have to say that um, it's a, it's a, it's a feeling that is very unique to also our generation because we did come from our homeland you know our parents sacrificed so much to pull us out and they they took the the brunt of it the trauma and we were kind of in the middle and we were stuck between two cultures you know the culture we came from and then the new one that we were trying to assimilate into Whereas our parents' generation, they kind of always remained that way, whether in their memories or or however, they never really, assimilation was never an option for them, at Mm. least for my family, I'll say that. But for Iman, I look at him now and, you know, I, I worry for his future in America because, you know, he's American, he was born here, he doesn't know any other home, you know, he doesn't... He doesn't think of himself as not being American, but mm. I know that if this, if the country continues on this current trajectory that it's on, the Americans will not look at him as you're one of us. You know, they will look at him as an immigrant. So I worry, I worry about that more than anything. And 
you know, Ramin and I are both, you know, we've been best friends since I was 18 years old, you know, so we've kind of grown up together in many ways. And one thing we share is a very fearless spirit. We are those people that will say, you know what, let's just move. Let's just get up and do this. But now we can't do that anymore because this is Iman's home. And I keep forgetting sometimes that he is an American. He, it's not going to be that easy for me to tell him, let's go, you know. I, I want to come back to that. I want to come back to the identity question. Um, by the way, it's, uh, and I want to actually find out how it was that you guys met and became partners. I mean, exactly how, because it's not very really clear. You can't find the story of <laughs> Azam and Ramin anywhere online. You're trying I to get find, the exclusive, um, yeah. But, but, but what's really sweet is, uh, when you say you're best friends since you were 18, Azam, you've so far, at least in this interview, uh, we've just begun, and you've each answered questions by starting by by saying, for me, uh, in my opinion, for me, which is quite, it's really sweet. It's quite respectful. In other words, neither of you um, dares, perhaps, or believes that you should answer for both of you. You, you, which suggests sometimes you maybe you have disagreements, but that you've created this this uh, community amongst the two of you where you know that you have to speak for yourselves. Would that be correct, Ramin? Yeah, I'm going to answer now. Okay, <laughs> for you. You're going to answer for you. No, I'm not. Actually, before, no, I will let him answer. But I have to say this joke um, because it's so it's so true. We, we are very different in many ways, even musically. And what works for us is to maintain a respectful um, sort of approach you know in terms of when we share our views we we don't get emotionally invested in them um when we're disagreeing so it's important to distinguish his thoughts versus mine but i had to just say that there's this i forget who the comedian was who said this joke but he said that the that marriage is a union of two people coming together to become one the question is which one <laughs> <laughs> and, and i always love that and i wish i could remember who said it because so often i go to dinner parties and it drives me crazy when men answer for their women or women answer for their men and i have to tell you it more often happens that women answer for men and it really upsets me and i never want to become that couple you know uh, uh, can I answer for myself? Well, I, I, now you can answer for yourself, <laughs> Robbie. <laughs> I don't dare say anything before Robbie gets to speak. Uh, well, I think uh, really for me boils down to the question of trust. You know, because a lot of times when we don't see eye to eye on a certain issues or subject or something that is happening and the reason that we get angry as human beings is that we just don't trust that maybe the other side might be just as valid so if there is a lot of trust in the relationship then you then you you can kind of you know pull back and just listen and say okay well you know i hear you i don't agree with you but i hear you and i respect you mm -hmm. and i think that's that's very fundamental in kind of avoiding 
situations because look we we are married we work together we travel together we're in the same band and you know we're raising a child at home and you know it's 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 a lot that we put on our relationship yeah and it's a miracle we haven't killed uh, each other yeah seriously <laughs> Cle clearly you guys have figured out how to make this work it's it's it, it's quite magical to think that you've uh, you've done this over the last few decades and and you've that that um cardinal uh, sin of mixing church and state of of, of working together and being in uh, life partners together is is uh, is quite remarkable. Let's people get. We've set the stage for the two of you and and a little bit of who you are. Let's get into to your music. Let me play a little bit of, of a song from uh, two thousand and eight from your album Nine Heavens. Here's a little taste of Benny Benny. song of yours I love. That's Niaz from 2008 and the song Benny Benny. I'm speaking with Azam and Ramin from uh, Niaz. You know, see, I hate to be pedantic, but uh, let, let's start with some definitions here, understanding what you guys do. I, uh, for me, <laughs> for me, <laughs> I have issues with this, uh, with the, this term world music. Uh, sometimes it, it, it can be used as a catch-all for anything from a guy on a pan flute to a, a you know, death metal band from Mexico. Uh, you've been called world music. Are you comfortable with this designation of world music? Never, never. I have never liked that term. I mean, even now, for lack of something better, I, I, I default to global music. But world always implied, it always for me sounds very condescending and it's very white centric in my opinion. It's there's us and then there's the rest of the world, <laughs> you know? It's a very white centric term. So I, re I outright reject it. Um, We've tried to come up with other terms, but it just seems that nobody can ever agree. Actually, I, this is a very important subject you brought up, so I want to put my uh, ideas in there. You know, it, the world music really comes from the ideology of Orientalism. And it is really talk about what we want to exotify and how we're going to do that in terms of music. Uh, because then you look at certain uh, elements that shows up in uh, world music charts that you know like Celtic music and then you look at uh, Hawaiian music and those all end up being in the right. genre of world music right. and the reason is because it's exotified and the roots of that is the way we look at the ideology of Orientalism in the context of music you know you're absolutely right and and these sounds that we hear that are all fall under this category are completely completely different from each other they have no relation to each other uh, with when it comes to you guys uh 
I've always heard, now remember, I'm a kid who grew up listening to Susie and the Banshees and Nine Inch Nails, and so I, I hear a lot of... In, I in, Okay, okay, good, because I hear, I don't, see, I didn't know if it was going to be an insult or not, but I hear industrial and electronical influences from this dark industrial stuff I would hear in the 80s and 90s. Is it, would that also be part of what has inspired you, Azam? I think that that part comes from me because I when I when I moved here from India, you know, I was 15 and I immediately got into a lot of the post-punk scene and a lot of the music that was coming out of the UK and also a lot of industrial music and it was kind of my gateway into electronic music. So it that definitely comes through. I mean, my solo album last year, which I released, Phantoms, is entirely about that. It's about going back to the influences from the 80s. You know, that for me was an incredible decade for music. And even the 90s, Massive Attack, Portishead, a yes. lot of those bands had massive influence on me. So I, I do feel that it comes through it was not necessarily Ramin was a hippie he had an afro and he used to listen to Pink Floyd and you know <laughs> Shakti so we were in completely different places so um but but it it complements each other I think quite well in in, this, in that sense because there it's also very dark the elements I bring to it are very dark why why uh, as I'm why your music is quite dark and introspective why do you gra gravitate towards that I see, I don't really see it as depressing. Most people associate dark with gloom and doom, but but for me, it's it's actually about depth. And um, it's it's so hard to put into word because it's, we're, we're now talking very esoteric yeah. in that sense, but it's it's um, it's so transformative. This this ability, this this ability we have to take our pain and our struggle and to transform it into something that can illuminate the world this for me is a is a remarkable gift that we are given as human beings that every time I sit to work on music, I mine from these experiences. I mine, majority of the time, I'm mining from my own pain, you mm. know, and, and, and hoping that, that there will be some transformation in that and then I can create something that is going to resonate on, on that level, on that deep level with another human being. Have you ever had um, a, a circumstance? I can only think that I think of Iranians too who would come up and go, um, You know, can, can oh, you sing no. something like All happy for us? We're at a wedding, you know, or whatever. Do you get that kind of feedback? All the time. All it's the, the time. most respectful thing that Iranians allow themselves to do. And, and it's one of the reasons we really have stopped performing Iranian festivals because inevitably there will be that you know, mindless, drunk Iranian who will come up to the stage and yell at us while we are on the stage. In between the song, he will yell, you know, sing something happy right, for us. Right, right. And it's so disrespectful, you know. 
Uh, but yeah, that's that, that's the very unrefined aspect of our culture. By the way, the irony to me of that is most of these songs, <laughs> I- Iranian pop, that sound sort of uppity that everybody's dancing at at weddings, the, the lyrics are actually terribly sad. They're actually usually tragic <laughs> songs, right? It's like... Yeah, Even right. our classical music, it's, it's one long tragedy. You know, I can't listen to Persian classical music. It's so depressing for me. I like folk music, but the classical... You know, I can't handle it. See, now she's really speaking for herself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you, you guys have said that you set out to create something modern, but not necessarily westernized. So uh, again, I as I that, oh, you said that. Okay, okay. So <laughs> as I so as I try to um, deconstruct what that means, I realize that I'm bringing my own prejudices to that because I I think, well, how can it be modern and not westernized? You know. So so tell us a bit about the distinction. Well, that really came because we when we started touring the world, and um, we we didn't know it at the time, uh, right after the first album came out, but it it became really successful in Turkey and it was shocking for us because we just went there and we were walking in Taksim Square, the biggest square there, and our music was blasting and we were both in tears because we just couldn't believe that, you know, this place that we love and suddenly our music is is just everywhere. And as we started performing there, it, this idea really came to me as we were taking the stage in the in Middle East and, and in Northern African countries, is that we often, in our cultures, in our respective uh, cultures, we identify modernity with, with becoming Western, with Westernization. We think to modernize, we have to Westernize, because that's really a byproduct of colonialism. Sure. You know, everything was was about, you know, we want to be modern and we want to be Western. And I think that also plays into artistic expression. My idea always was that it is possible to modernize without Westernizing. And electronic music is not unique to Western music. It's, It's electronic, you know, it's technology, but our music is in no way um, Western in that sense. Um, But at the same time, it's very modern. So, so that was kind of my message, is just that you can modernize without without westernizing. See, a lot of it for us was about decolonizing ourselves first, and then decolonizing our artistic expression. And it's a, it's a continuing work for us, this decolonization of the self. But it's also, uh, I mean, before we deconstruct this too intellectually, it's also visceral music. Uh, Rami, you said yes. the word, you, you said the word spiritual a few minutes ago. You, your music has always, to me, sounded undeniably spiritual. Are, Rami, are you guys, are you two very spiritual? I would say yes, in a sense that uh, every day there is, it's, it is a struggle to become a better human being. And in that sense, also to be true to our expression. And when we create something, 
we're trying to create a, tran a transformation, first in myself and then in the listener. I mean, there we have a word in Farsi, and interestingly, Turks also use the same word, and that's the word hal. It's a state of mind that you want to go to, that it is kind of transcendent. And if you can get there, then what you are creating is not really coming from you, you're just channeling. And it's, it's, it is for that that we strive. And when, when you get there, you know you are creating something that it is, that it is spiritual, or at least you're hoping that it is spiritual. Spiritual is not necessarily religious. And, no, and, 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 and I want to ask you, I mean, is there a paradox at times that your yeah. music is embraced by Westerners and not always by people, not, all, not always by Iranians or people from the East? There's this resistance yeah. or concern about anything that references spirituality. And I think there are misconceptions, you know, around mixing spirituality and religion, especially in the Iranian community and in the diaspora. Can, can you speak to that? Well, you know, we... we don't really talk too much about our personal beliefs because for me I believe your spiritual life like your sex life should be private you know it's it's one of those things that often creates more division than it does unify and you know I I just had a very interesting upbringing and a very unique upbringing which is that you know I came from a Muslim and Baha'i family and then I went to India and then I grew up around Hinduism and Buddhism. And then I had a teacher who loved me and every Sunday took me to church with her. And then I also grew up with a lot of Parsis and, you know, so, so you know, also Jainism is big, Zoroastrianism. So I, I was exposed to everything. And, and then I also had an interest in, in all religions. And I always looked for the commonalities within them. And no doubt that comes into play when in, in our artistic expression because it is art and essence is a higher communication. So, so if you are going to have an, a higher communication, it has to be in a language that is universal and that it's, um, it has to transcend these boundaries. Mm -hmm. So I would say it, it is very spiritual for us because that's kind of where we go. You know, we don't have a, we don't go to church or we don't have a sort of religious life. Neither of us do. But every day I get up and when I come in here into the studio to work, you know, that's for me, it's, that's my temple, you know, it's sacred space. Actually, if you look at our Iranian music, or poets, it's all based on Erfan, it's all based on spirituality. And it is one thing that it is the, the gift and the heritage that we have to continuously carry on. Because it's the one gift that we can give to the world and that is the wisdom that not just not through us but through all those that came before us really tried to, to tap into something 
So you, you pick up any poetry from anyone from the classical con in the classical context, and it's all about spirituality. I think the only thing I would add to that is that my, my experience within Iranian communities, this exists much more in the older generation. I think the younger generation who are westernized now have a different, uh, you know, they see through a different prism. But for the most part, I think all of us Iranians have suffered a collective PTSD when it comes to religion. Yeah. And it's it's across the board, you know. And somehow I feel that the baby got thrown out with the bathwater because although the things that we take most pride in are so intertwined with spirituality, we no longer, we have severed it from, from its spiritual roots. You know, people will talk about how they hate religion and all that, but then they will recite these poems and somehow disassociate. I mean, there's a kind of cognitive dissonance that's yes, happening there yes, for me. Yes. And, uh, and one of the reasons when we started Niaz of going back to these ancient songs and texts and, sh and you know, our idea was not we're going to show, we're going to be incredible Iranian musicians. I don't even think of myself as an Iranian artist per se. You know, I don't have a nationalist agenda. But the idea was to kind of tell the story of our generation, of how we were severed from our roots, and how we don't need to erase or completely erase our identities and dismiss these, this amazing legacy from which we are rising, you know. So that's a big part of our, our mission with NIOS is, is hopefully to prevent those who are like us from erasing their identity. Let me play something from that first album that you just referenced. In fact, a song called Ghazal, and I think Ghazal means poem, right? Or Yes. Uh, so it's uh, particularly appropriate after what you just said. A little taste of uh, Niaz from 2005. and the debut record from Niaz, the song Ghazal. Ramin, tell me about yes. that song and leading off your first album with that. Do you remember Actually, that Actually, <laughs> it's a very, very beautiful song and the credit goes to Azam. She came up with the idea of that song and chose the, the Urdu poetry for it. So if you want to ask about that song, you should actually ask Azam, because in that album, that's the one that I actually had the least... I was going to say, Ramin, have you been involved in any of the music that you guys have made? Or? 
<laughs> no, but you know, we this is generally how we work is that before we do an album, we gather a lot of material. I mean, it's, it's a lot of poetry. We just gather it. He mostly will gather the Farsi ones. I gather Urdu. And if there are any other like folk songs, usually I'm the headhunter for all that. And then we just have it there and then we start writing and then we, as we're writing, we pull up poems and see which one would suit a song well. And for Ghazal in particular, I really love this idea of mixing Farsi with the Urdu, you know, because it's really, it's, it's me. It's really such a... It's it's such an honest expression of who I am. I, I should first of all let me just uh, say that I was being facetious, of course, because Ramin is a monster musician, and I, 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 in case I anybody know. doesn't know that the guy's amazing. But um, but you know, Azam, when you when you talked a few moments ago about uh, this collective PTSD, and uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree with this notion, and it's part of the reason, quite quite frankly, part of the incentive for developing Rook, this program, that, that we in the diaspora, one of the elements of connective tissue is that um, you can't find an Iranian who, after you you know scratch beneath the surface a little bit, uh, who doesn't have a, a, an experience of a great deal of pain or or trauma or I mean, this is that we are collectively a people who have been through a lot in the last half century. Let alone centuries uh, and and including revolution war displacement all of that and you in particular have quite a, a harrowing story because uh, as i understand it you part of the reason you leave iran at the age of four to go to india uh, is because of religious discrimination or persecution right can you tell tell us what happened well, uh, my my parents, it was a love marriage, and uh, my father's uh, side is Muslim, and my mother's side is Baha'i, and the families were very much against it, but, you know, love prevailed, and they got married, and they had a child before me, uh, I had a brother, and unfortunately, when I was, my mother was pregnant with me, my brother died. And over his death, my parents, um, it, it, you know, very few marriages survived the death of a child. And, um, and it was just too much. And the, it, all the fighting over how they were going to have the burial ceremony, was it going to be Muslim? Was it going to be Baha'i? And it was just too much, I think, for them. So my father left us, actually. He left us. And then they were threatening to take me from my mother, because also, you know, back then, it's, I mean, it's the same now, but back then women didn't have that many rights. And also my mom was a Baha'i, so they were, they were a religious minority. And so my mother was so afraid that they would take me. And at that time, this very wealthy Baha'i surgeon, this doctor had built the school in India. He had funded for this school to be built in India called New Era. And my mother was a nurse and she was working in the hospital. So he told my mother, you should just send her there. This way she'll be out of their reach. So it was the most painful decision my mother made in her life. But when I turned four, she sent me to boarding school in India and I was there for 11 years. Yeah, wow. Um, and I mean, this, this, this is not the stuff that you can sort of put in a nutshell in one answer, but, uh, 
but how did those years in India, I mean, I understand by the time you were five years old, you were studying a Indian classical dance in, in boarding school in India, uh, and you eventually moved to the United States and, and fall in love with the Persian Santur and start your journey in, in, in your career in music. How did this background, this upbringing, this growing up in India under those particular circumstances affect who you've become? You know, I, I, I hold a very, I'm, I'm one of these people that I can hold multiple views and it's, it's something, it's maybe one, one of my best qualities is that, and therapy, this is one reason I never liked therapies. I, I just, you know, every time I would go to therapy, they would sit there and tell me, wow, this was so traumatizing. Can we, can we dive deeper into that? And I just never really f felt the need to. Um, because I, deep down, I truly believe that the universe never works against us, that there is a benevolence in the universe. And if I was meant to, to leave my parents and leave my homeland, I could not have really thought of a better place than my beautiful little town in India and the school that I went to. Because we were raised with uh, a lot of art, so there was a lot of emphasis placed on art. And we had children from 25 different countries in the world, so from very young age, I, I didn't even know that there were black people until I came to America and I saw that people were distinguishing between white and black because I grew up with Nigerians and Ethiopians and I n we never heard you're black and I'm ah, white. Yes. You know, when, when my friend moved to New York, m she's, she's from Nigeria and the first thing I said to her when we found each other after we left India, I said, I never knew you were black till I came to America. And she said, isn't huh. that amazing, you know? So it was a very unique upbringing and a lot of spirituality. And th there was always this emphasis on service to mankind. Everything you do, every act should be an act of service. So this is also embedded in who I am as a person, who I am as an artist. I think anything I do, especially with the gift that I've been given as a singer, has to serve. It has to serve people on a fundamental and meaningful level so how can i look back on on the tragedy that i experienced and and think that it was bad when so much good has come from it how many thousands of people write to me of how who i am and and um, the music that I create has helped them in their lives. How can I ever look back on that experience? Just, uh, sorry, just, uh, just briefly, why did you end up, if, if the experience was quite good in India, what did bring you to the United States? Well, that's the other, that's tragedy part two. <laughs> <laughs> now, now we enter act two of, you know. No, actually what happened was, okay, once the revolution happened, I was going back and forth because during the monsoon, our school would close and I would go back to Iran for three months. Ah. And then we, I would come back to school. 
So then the, when the revolution happened in 79, we no longer could go back. And then my mother couldn't get out because she was a Baha'i. And it, it was just a really horrible time. So I did not see my mother for eight years. And by the time she came to India, she was a stranger to me. Wow. And she lived there for two years, and she hated India. Actually, we left because of my mother. My mother hated India. It was She had severe OCD. It was too dirty for her. It was... You know, so so she was she just did not see me having a good future there. So at that time, there were three countries: Canada, Australia, and the U.S. that were offering political asylum to the Baha'is who were trapped outside of Iran. And it was a lottery system. So my mother put her name in there. You didn't know which country it was going to be or what it was going to be, and and we ended up getting selected to come to the U.S. and straight to Los Angeles. So in 85, um, that's how I came here with my mother. I feel like my whole life, everything had been, until that point, every, every, everything had been decided for me, of where I was going to go live, mm. what, what I was. And that's why for me, the move to Canada became so important because I needed at least once in my life to choose where I want to live myself. Mm. I did not want someone else to choose it for me. But not before you did it with Ramin, and so let me yes. let me uh, hear Ramin's story uh, that's happening parallel at the same time, um, albeit a, a few years, little little bit older. Um, Ramin, what what were the circumstances in which you end up leaving Iran? So I left Iran at the midst of during the midst of revolution in uh, early, late 1978, actually December 27th of 1978. Uh, you know, my I I kind of was born into a upper middle Iranian family, and it was very very customary during those years to send your kids to go study abroad. But they had seen my you know I had two three older brother and sisters, and they had seen the outcome of sending their kids out. And then they had when it came to me, they said that you know what we're not going to do this, <laughs> make the same mistake with this one. So actually, the plan was for me to stay in, in Iran, but the revolution started happening, and then they sent me to Eugene, Oregon, actually, among all the places that where I end up going, because uh, my brothers uh, were not uh, kind of in a situation that they could kind of take over my uh, guardianship. So I ended up in a foster family, but, you know, a kind of a, not a assigned by government but you know families come to decision and then they actually you 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 know they foster your kids so I ended up in a foster home for three years and then I I moved to LA to kind of uh, try to make a living and kind of find out who I am what am I gonna do and it's you know very very difficult chaotic years very very difficult and chaotic years on my own When you say very difficult and chaotic years, what's what's something that comes to mind? Well, I can give you a very easy, you know, kind of to lighten up the conversation. You know, I, you know, when I went to Eugene, Oregon, you know, I, I was a 14-year-old average Iranian kid, height, you know, and all I could say is, hello, this is Pencil. You know, this was... <laughs> This was the extent of the my command of English language at the time. This is 
Why, why in particular had you learned pencil? Is it I, don't, I don't know. But school, probably for school. Okay. But then, you know, I walked into, and you know, and Eugene is, uh, you know, it's rainy. It's, you know, it's kind of, a, you know, the climate is very different. And I went there and, you know, and I never forget the first day that I walked into the high school and all the kids, all the boys looked so so gigantic i mean i i was so intimidated by being just among all these giants you know it was let alone not being able to speak their language it, it was just uh, you know and then you know from that age onwards you know from 14 you know i had to do my laundry to cook to kind of find who i am and you know what am i gonna eat there were days that i would just you know i was on my own so what the hell i'm not gonna go to school you know who's who's it that is gonna go so the school would call and i answer on behalf of my mom or my dad <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and just tell them oh now he can't come in today and then you know it's just like but what, what was i doing you know it's all a lot of the emotional you know reconciliation that i had to do inside myself and adaptation you know and being able to work and you know eugene and oregon has two sides it has a side that is very liberal and has a side that it is extremely yeah. conservative yeah so of course i joined the hippies and that was a much much more comfortable place for me to be and my friends were called you know white e e even though they were all much bigger than you well actually although that they were bigger than me but because i was quote unquote exotic and you know <laughs> right, I kind right. of <laughs> I don't know if this is appropriate or not but my father used to say Tukhma <laughs> Amrikai yeah exactly no but tell them you tell him your uh, your story of when you were biking to school because there is also a very it's gotten better but you know you have to remember there is a very very redneck side to Oregon yeah I mean so you know I was like Okay, I would be on my bike, and those days, uh, actually, by law, if you owned a, a shotgun, you had to display it uh, in your car. You could not have a concealed weapon. So, you know, I would be on a bike, and then it's during the hostage crisis, you know, and then, you know, suddenly a van would pull aside me and roll down the window and then say, you know, just go home, you know, just go, and then... I'm on a bike, you know, I was going to say, okay, I'm going to take your advice, right? A good idea, you know? Go back to your country. Yeah. What am I going to do, you know? But you just try to keep your head down and, you know, and, and just go, you know? And then I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to go to a big city and, you know, I'm going to go to L.A. because I couldn't work, you know? I tried to, once I finished high school, I tried to go do what, you know, a lot of kids in Oregon do, and that's plant trees. I lasted half a day trying to go up that hill and coming down and planting trees. I mean, it wasn't for me. I couldn't do it. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to L.A. And that was a whole other, you know, it's not easy to come as a kid to L.A. and trying to make it on your own. You, you know, I try and tell the, 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 the guys who work on this show, people like Shia and Reza and, and Ponta and Susan, they've all come in the years after the revolution. They're all much, they're, some of them weren't alive during the revolution. And I, I say to them, you have, you, you I, I don't know how to impress upon you how bad it was to be in the West. Yeah. I was a kid in Toronto, but you know, how bad it was during that hostage crisis, during that revolution to be of Iranian descent. It, it, there's no, there's other than, I mean, I don't even know how to, uh, you know, make a comparison. It was just so incredibly toxic. You somehow make it through that. 
and uh, yeah. you start to become this incredible musician. In, in, in by '92, which is the year you say your parents joined you, you co-found Axiom of Choice, which was this extremely yeah. popular uh, band with these unique sort of progressive sounds rooted in traditional Persian music. Um, when did you know that music was going to be your path? I mean, we heard from Azam that she was a a, a whirling musical creative dervish from the beginning. But uh, was that true for you too? No, you know, I I kind of uh, wanted to play violin at the age of eleven, uh, I, and it took about two years to uh, convince my parents to actually get me a violin. <laughs> I never forget that the. the I think it was maybe on the third lessons that I was taking on a violin and the teacher uh, was teaching me among all the songs Jingle Bell. And I, when I played it, uh, I felt like I was Mozart. <laughs> something, <laughs> something inside me suddenly changed and it, it was like the most incredible thing that I was doing. And uh, from that point on, there was a fire. There was always something inside me that wanted to express myself through music. Uh, by education, I'm a mathematician. And I have done hundreds of things to make a living. But it always boiled down to kind of trying to do use music as form of my expression. And then... Uh, of course, I came to United States, and you know nobody. I couldn't continue learning Iranian classical violin, so I adopted guitar. I picked up a guitar, and over the time, that you know, the flamenco music was the one that sounded the most. It was resonating with me, and I said, oh, "You know what? I'm gonna go study flamenco music. I love that music, and I still do." So I was taking classes from this incredible uh, flamenco uh, guitarist here in LA and I would go to his classes, he would give me a lesson, I would go home, I'd practice so hard and I'll go back and then he, his reaction would, okay, let's, and would go to the next lesson. Hmm. And then uh, I would be so kind of like baffled like that's it that's all i'm gonna get for all the work i did so one day finally i mustered uh, the courage and i asked him i said okay paco you got to tell me what's wrong he said you know you you're you you have an accent in your phrases and you're never going to get rid of that uh, if you want to get rid of it you have to go to live in spain you have to be the fourth guy in the row in a cafe playing flamenco and only doing the resquiado that's just holding the rhythm you, you have to embrace the culture, the language, the way of life that comes with it. So I quit. So I tried to then go try to really learn Iranian music again and really started a new journey. And that, that led me eventually to kind of meet Mamak uh, in a, in a um, class that I was taking from a guitar player, Pira Yepurafa. And immediately I wanted to do something different with that music that I was learning and I was very excited to express it in a new formation and that led to Axiom of Choice and I created, wrote three, I, I, I consider it as being very successful albums, not economically but in terms of culturally. Sure.
but you also create the first ever cordesone guitar with movable frets. This is to be able to play, to apply Iranian, traditional Iranian techniques and melodies. Um, th this is quite extraordinary that you, you, you're quite committed to, uh, what, what's that, what's that going to be called? Modal music uh, or, or to, to being able to play those Persian sounds? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, microtonal microtonal music, you know, is something is like having a bigger vocabulary. Uh, for me, it, it was an asset and I was already a guitarist. So what would be the natural thing to do is to add quarter frets to a, 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 an instrument that I am already familiar with. So I created a quarter tone guitar and then I always, you know, would, there is a side of me that is very pragmatic and very intellectual. And I would realize that uh, I, you know, in the, all the recordings that I'm hearing, and these are the, like some of the best recordings at the time that was coming out of Iran during the post-revolution, you know, produced by Alizadeh, by Meshkatian and all that. And you listen to it and there are a series of a spectrum of sound that were missing. And I would say, aha, you know, then, then this is where I can actually contribute to this music and try to kind of feel or utilize those areas that are basically lacking. And that's the baritone. Our instruments are, we're not naturally baritone. They were all either alto or soprano. You know, uh, listening to your respective stories, uh, difficult stories about growing up, about not really feeling like you belonged anywhere, about being uh, different versions of being abandoned, um, it becomes cl clear as we're listening to this that you're somehow made for each other. Uh, and you you did promise me this uh, the story of how this... Uh, so if I'm doing the math correctly, because uh, as I'm, you said earlier, when you were 18, you became best friends. So this is the late 80s then. In California, in Los Angeles, you've both through circuitous, weird, obstacle course, labyrinthine journeys, you've ended up in Los Angeles. Tell me about meeting each other. Let's start with... With, um, hmm. Ramin, you tell tell me the story from your perspective first. Of all. <laughs> so I I in you know I graduated from UCLA in the nineteen uh, in nineteen ninety, and I was working for uh, already I was working for McDonald Douglas, and you know this is a kind of like going from being a street boy. Finally made it to school, and then I'm working, and then I find myself at one day saying, you know what, I'm building F-16s, and I just couldn't do it. I just felt like I cannot sit in that cubicle as a mathematician and contribute to the destruction of the world. So I quit. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just one of those that just jumps if it's like, it's so I, what I did, I opened a, a little import shop, start traveling to India, bringing stuff and trying to kind of, uh, you know, make a living by having this little shop in L.A. And then soon after I opened that shop, uh, Azan walked in, maybe within a few months of that. And, you know, we, we kind of became acquaintances and it was a very exciting time in LA in terms of world music or international artists that were here there there was this fire of trying to create something new you know we would gather time to time and you know we would play we would talk we would you know go to a restaurant together it was it was really magical 
Uh, and, wait, a uh, second, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. wait. He, he said it all wrong. Yeah, that, wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> you never you, ask you, a man <laughs> to tell a romantic story. It just never. It's first, never. I have to leave that thing. You're never going to sell that screenplay, first of all. That was yeah, horrible. That's, that's so, like, he lost second that two-minute elevator pitch. He lost it. <laughs> he, he sounded like he was falling asleep as he was telling us. Uh, and then we, we went on some dates. We went to a movie. Yeah, it was a magical time. Uh, so, yeah. so, 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 wait a second, wait, 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 wait. So you open a store yeah, and she walks in. Are you in the store when she walks in? Yeah. Actually, okay. Do you want the story or not? I'll I, tell you. I want to, first of all, I want to hear what his reaction was the first time he sees you. No. What? Okay. So what happened is that. I was 18 years old and I was like this little like post-punk girl and I used to love to go um, thrift store shopping. I always bought, uh, bought my clothes at secondhand stores and there was one place I particularly loved to go. So this one day I went there and I see this new little gallery next to it I was, and I couldn't tell is it an art gallery what's happening and I just walked in the front to the front. And I just looked in the window and I saw all these icons and artifacts from India. So immediately it got my attention because, you know, growing up in India and my, my love for the culture and everything. And I never had seen a store like this. So I, oh, I went in and he was standing in the far back, this skinny guy with a huge afro. Hmm. And I was like, I, I couldn't understand what was happening. So then I said... I went up to him and I said, hi, is this your store? And he said, yes, yes, the, my brother and I just opened this and, uh, you know, it's our gallery. And I kept trying to, I mean, I was kind of attracted to him and I had not really, I didn't really know Iranians at that point. Mm -hmm. I was flirting with him and he kept dismissing me, <laughs> you know, and later he told me he thought I was too young, you know, he was, so he kept dismissing me. So I, I thought, this guy's really not friendly. So then I left. I left and, you know, I looked around and then I left. And then I came back to his store a year after that. Oh, wow. And then we became a little bit better friends. And then the, this bizarre thing happened is that, he's, as he said, there was this movement in L.A., this artistic renaissance in many ways. And then what happens is one night I go to see the master musicians of Jajuka, this in incredible group, at, uh, at the Performing Arts Center. And it turns out that he, Ramin, was sitting behind me with Greg Ellis, the guy who I had my band in. Yeah. They were right behind me and my girlfriend. So then we were just kind of surprised, wow, you know, running into each other here. And then, unbeknownst to me, Ramin was like, wow, she's grown up, I'm ready. <laughs> 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 Meanwhile, me so so then after the concert, we decide my girlfriend. Had so what what, what year is this? What you when is this? We're talking about 93. 92, 93. And then my my girlfriend had this lovely place in Venice, so she said, "Let's all go to my house afterwards and just hang out and make music." So we all went there, and Greg was completely smitten with me. So he was just you know. I, I don't know how these two guys went to the concert and they both wanted to ask me out and they did not have that discussion because <laughs> what what ended up happening was that the the next day Greg called me and said, I, w I want to go out with you. Um, can we go out? And this guy 
had told himself, you know what, I'm going to be a gentleman and wait two days and then I'm going to call her and ask her out. So he missed me by 24 hours. So then Greg comes over and then he, we just had, that was a connection that was just, it was meant to be and and it was explosive and it lasted a, a wonderful amount of years and a lot of great music came out of that. You know, my my last band came out of that. But throughout those years... What was very interesting is that our friendship just parallel to me having this other life was was just blossoming. We had this amazing friendship like because then he married uh, another woman and a lovely woman actually and then our lives became very close because Greg was playing in his band and then you know sometimes Loga would come to our house to record or, or just you know we we had very parallel lives at the same time we were very close and Every time we used to get together, we used to, it was like everybody else disappeared in the room. We would just laugh. And we, that's the secret to our relationship is the amount that we laugh together. And when we get, would come together, people always used to say, even the singer of his last band always said, you know, she used to always say to me, I have no idea why you two are not married. You know, it just seems so, such a wrong mismatch here. So we used to hear that a lot from mutual friends that just that, you know, but it just wasn't meant to be, you know, and um, I think also in hindsight, it's about a level of maturity. And, I, and then one day I knew I wanted to leave my relationship. It was, you know, it, it was dead and it had like like most organic things. It had its lifespan. And and uh, when I made that decision, I remember Ramin was the only person on earth I could talk to. And I went to his gallery. And, and as soon as he opened the door and I, I walked in, I just started crying. I left that relationship and within five months, my mom suddenly passed away. She had a stroke in her sleep at 61. So it was just like, that was the year when my life got turned upside down and it all just came falling apart. And, uh, and also at the same time, I didn't know that Ramin was going through the same thing. So he ended up leaving his marriage. So we were kind of comforting each other through this process, you know, of of suffering such monumental losses and you know there's also such a deep sense of failure when you when a relationship fails it's something we don't talk about very often but this is, is still something. this is still pre-neos you haven't uh, formed a group yet yeah this is still pre-neos so then during the the next two years we we kind of were transitioning from becoming friends to lovers but we couldn't reconcile that the two because there were so many others people involved and hearts to be broken and and it was just so so we tried dating other people and and no matter what would happen we'd keep coming back to each other until finally um I was in Europe and he he had he had traveled to Iran and come back and he he was in LA and I had gone off soul searching to Europe and I just was so exhausted because I knew that I was running away from my destiny and it was two years of running and I was exhausted. And I just called him crying from Paris and I said, I'm really tired. I want to come home and I want to come home to you. And I'm crying now saying that.
and he said, I'm waiting, just come. And it was, it, that part was, I swear it was a Bollywood movie, that moment when <laughs> I came out in the airport and we saw each other from across the, the lounge, you know, and there were like hundreds of people between us and the way we ran towards each other, I swear we put every Bollywood movie to shame. And then we came and we never, since then, we have never, I think we've been apart for 24 hours in the last 18 years. Can you believe that? Wow. So that's how it was. Now, didn't you get the more romantic version? Well, uh, let, me <laughs> just, uh, let me just comment on that and say uh, that story was about a thousand times better than Ramya's story. Yeah, I told you. <laughs> Maybe 10,000 times. Yeah. Uh, I knew what you were setting yourself up for when you asked him to go first, but you know what? It's your show. I wasn't going to ruin no, it. No, no, no. It's better that we heard his version first. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure... <laughs> <laughs> Ramid, as a creative man, I'm not sure what your version of the story says about you, but but can I just can we just go back to that first moment because I this might be weird and you guys might think this is weird, I, but I feel like when you have a profound connection with someone. Um, like the kind of connection that you two have, which was fated, right? You're 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 going to spend. You're going to end up being together for years. That the first time you see each other, there's something you feel something, which clearly, uh, I mean, maybe you were just a, a young girl flirting, but clearly, as I'm, you seem to have felt something. I want to know, Ramin. So this this bohemian, this alterno, this secondhand clothing chick comes in uh, to your store. What do you remember about the first time you met her? Actually, I remember her physically very well. But as she said, you know, at that time, I just like, you know, I looked at this Anna, you know, she's just she's just not mature enough. You know, she's too young. Really, that was that she's I mean, absolutely right about that. But she was not making it up uh, because we have talked and laughed so much about it among ourselves. But, you know, and then she she also went through a transformation. I mean, actually, if I would have taken a picture of her then and then when I saw her at the at the concert, she was totally a different woman. So and that woman that she became was, you know, was what I was attracted to. And but, you know, our relationship, as Azam said, you know, is just kind of like so because we never dated you know her mom was going to go to iran and then she called me and you know she said you know i'm going to iran first of all don't tell azam that i'm calling you because she's going to kill me you know one of those iranian thing you know <laughs> but i'm i'm kind of wanna you know i want to trust my girl in your hand and i thought okay it's one of those formality things you know we do it you know yes chash nabashid, you know <laughs> by all means of course i'm gonna look after her you know we didn't have and you know what happened she went to iran and she died and suddenly she you know like she, she had a premonition she, like all these signs was very clear that <sighs> were coming up that it was you know that our relationship was you know, from the seen and the unseen world is there, you know? Yeah, I think the only thing I would add is my attraction to him was not so much that it was a necessarily a, 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 a sort of a carnal one. It, was it wasn't the afro that didn't, uh, that didn't sell you? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. That's long gone. <laughs> Actually, I never, ever thought I would marry an Iranian guy. I, I always found men of our culture to be such chauvinists. You know, mm. they're not anymore. Now and this, now they, it's changed. 
but you know just growing up and my experiences and just from what I knew of my father I just never wanted I just found the whole uh, that masculinity to be so toxic that I never wanted anything to do with it what attracted me to him initially it was something much deeper which is that it was the first time I had met an Iranian that had traveled and knew so much about India so suddenly I found a connection with another Iranian that had this connection to India as well. It was like, in many ways, it could have even been a brotherly sort of connection, you know, there was, it was something very deep though. And, um, and I knew that even though I left, I knew that it was not going to be the last time, like I hadn't seen the last of this guy. I knew that, you know, but the story with my mom was very remarkable because she had met Ramin and she loved him and you know this was during the years that we were you know we had left our relationships but we had decided you know it's better if we just remain friends you know too many people will be hurt by our you know relationship so let's not do it and um and I remember my my mother I didn't know until after she passed away that she had called him to say that but I remember she passed away on a Friday she just went on holiday and she I called her on Wednesday to see how she was doing. She was supposed to fly back on the Friday. And I called her on Wednesday, and it was not my mom. It was, she was just, you know, talking very strangely. She was talking very abstract and and very spiritual in many ways, you know. It was just very unlike her, you know. And and the last thing she said to me, she said, I, I really want you to marry Ramin. And I said, but he's my friend. It's never going to happen. And my mother said you really need to think about that again. But all I'm gonna say is you should marry him. And I'm so happy that I, I for the first time in my life, I, I have no worries about you. I'm no longer worried <sighs> about you. And then <sighs> we hung up the phone. And then Friday, my cousin calls to say, my, your mom had a stroke and she's in a coma. So, you know, then I had to wow. fly back to Iran and all that. So, and I flew back to Iran after not going for 26 years. So, I mean, it's just, by the time going through, I mean, it was... But she gave, you know, she gave this her blessing before... She gave it her blessing. It was and, her last act, yes. And you guys, so you go on to, I mean, to, to be life partners, but also to be creative partners. You form Niaz. Um, and fast forward a few years, you have a child, you have a son, Iman, and yeah. soon after that, you move to Montreal. Iman um, means faith. Um, yes. And I, I want to play a little bit of this song, which appears on, uh, on one of your records, but also has appeared on a Buddha Bar record uh, in the last couple of years. Um, tell me about choosing to, to call him Faith. Actually, uh, we came to an agreement that if it's a boy, I chose the name Iman, and if it was a girl, Iman, Azam chose the name Shazia. So he happened to be a boy, and we named him Iman because he truly is our fate. I mean, for us, he ended up being the, a very important uh, element in our dynamics that now it's a trio, you know, it's three of us that really became solidified our marriage and our our vision about life and the way we go about it. And I'm, and I'm not just saying that to, you know, just for the sake of saying or show out about them. It's really, truly became a way that we decided to change our lives. And so when you change your life, you have to have faith. You have to believe in something bigger. 
in order to do it. So he he ended up being that that catalyst for us. Here's a little taste of Iman. He said something earlier. I know I can't keep you guys here forever. I, I, I'm going to ask you a couple Why more. Why not? <laughs> I'm going to ask I you a couple think, more questions. I think we, we would be incredible friends. <laughs> oh, well, that's, I, I'm very much enjoying this. I wanna, I'm going to get to each of your respective um, solo projects before we finish off, and I want to hear a little bit of the song Hope and then go out on a song called Ceremony. But, um, but before we get there, you said something earlier uh, uh, as I'm that I, I can't uh, that I have to address or, or bring up because it was such a curious thing or interesting thing to say um, you, you, you've said that you're proud Iranians but you're not nationalists uh, I think I know what you mean by that but um, uh, tease that out for me what, what does that mean to you well this is going to go really deep there's not really a short answer to give um so, I mean, because of my, maybe it's because of my upbringing that I, I, I hold such a sort of broad world view. And as I s mentioned earlier, a big part of us coming here as Iranian immigrants was not just about learning about our culture being outside of our motherland, but a lot of it was about decolonizing ourselves. And the process is not always a nice one. And one of the first things we had to address is that there's no single Iranian identity, if we want to look about it, look at it from a historical standpoint even. You know, we, were, we had empires, we didn't have nations. That was a result of colonialism. So what to me, the single Persian identity is a very dangerous ideology because what it does is it erases the identities of all the ethnic and religious minority groups that make Iran the beautiful country that it is. Mm. So to, so for me, I, I will never adopt that nationalist agenda of promoting myself as an Iranian singer. And it's also very much the reason why the material we, cho we choose to perform is very deliberately chosen to represent ethnic and re religious minority groups in our region, not just in Iran, but even in Turkey, like the Turkish songs, like Beni Beni is from a religious minority group called the Alevi Bektashis, who are persecuted a lot in Turkey. So the idea is that, you know, you cannot have peace 
with the world unless you have peace within your own geographical borders. And for me, this, this single identity of whether it's to be Iranian or to be Turkish, because Turkey is the same as well, is it's, it's, very, it's a very colonial concept. And I, I just cannot embrace that. And it becomes problematic when, when I am in an environment that you see how proud Iranians are, you know, mm-hmm. proud of their Persian identity. And it's not that I'm not. It's, you know, they get offended when I say the, these things because, yes, we have a 2,500-year-old incredible legacy, but my, what I keep returning to is what are we doing now? What are we doing today to sort of honor that legacy you know we can't just sit around forever vote for people like trump and then say yeah but look at paris police you know we just (laughs) it just doesn't again we're coming back to cognitive dissonance you cannot take pride in in a in a country that invented human rights you know and at the same time support the the destruction of human rights you, you, you they just cannot coexist so and yet there's and yet there's something that we all uh, that, that I mean, it, it, in a way, this sounds. Uh, this might sound a little too esoteric, but what is Iran? I mean, uh, you, we know it's a nation state, and we know it's a, a controversial one where many of us uh, object to a lot of horrible things happening um, at present, or, or in the past, for that matter. But is it just a, a nation state, or is it more than that? Is it is it a um, and even would you go so far as to say it's a it's a it's a state of mind or it's a it's 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 a cultural way of existing there a, a friend of mine a woman recently said to me who is iranian and but is quite you know western has been uh, living outside of iran for 20 years uh quite successfully so has a good job etc said i really um oh Iranians, in fact she was reacting a little bit to me doing rook she said oh iranians and iran i don't like them I said, I said, what do you mean? She says, I, I, I just don't, I just, I don't think they're, I don't like it. I don't like Iran, and I don't like Iranian. You know, the kind of thing somebody says, born out of years of, of, uh, uh, um, all kinds of, you know, trauma or distress of what, what this place has, you know, caused her in her life. And I said, well, that's interesting because. I know you love dancing to Persian music at parties. I know at least four times a week you eat Khorish and, 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 you know, I know you're super close with your family. I know that you you could recite back to me all this poetry from, you know, thousands of years ago that is Persian poetry. So you, so there's something you do like, you know, but, but, uh, and it was hard to square that circle. Would you know that w- what she's getting at? Can I actually interject here? Sure, because go ahead. Something Rob. that is very important is that there is no singular Iran, even in the way that you're talking about it. I mean, yes, we have a common language. There is a Farsi language, and that Farsi language goes beyond the border of current current Iran, which that Iran was very looked very different in nineteen uh, nineteen. Uh, I'm sorry, in eighteen hundreds. Uh, before certain uh, part of it was given away during the Qajar's period, so. The, the reality is that we, yes, there was an empire, there was a language, but there is no singular identity of Iranian. There is a, now even that has become more complex because there is a vast amount of Iranian that were, people that were born in that ge- geographic border now live outside. 
So now we have this, what we call the Iranian in diaspora, which have nothing to do with Iranian that living in Iran. True. That's the reality. Quite a difference. We have yeah. our own nation. Yeah. We have our own culture. We have our own language. We have our own dynamics, which is very different than those who live in Iran. That And that's why it is always becomes problematic for me when the Iranians outside of Iran want to dictate about what needs to happen inside Iran. Sure. Because we don't know their pain. We don't know their social uh, struggle. We are not part of it. How dare we can give ourselves the right to interject our point of view when we are not sharing the same experiences with them. So from that aspect, there is an Iran that is outside of the border of Iran, and that's who we belong to. Right. And thank you, because you're articulating what we're trying to do with Rook. There is no... There's no name for that connective tissue. In fact, there's very few platforms for it. You guys might be, you know, in terms of what you're doing, is one of the places where you're, or or, or when Hamid Rahmanian does the 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 Shaun of the Feathers of Fire. It's a it's a it's a place to bring people together, which you guys did the music for so incredibly. It, that's a place to bring people together, a, a, a meeting point for those of uh, of Iranian descent and others. Uh, but but those those platforms until now haven't really existed as the numbers of Iranians, people of Iranian descent has grown uh, exponentially into the millions outside of Iran. Um, we're walking around like, okay, so where do we belong? I mean, this is the story of my whole life, which you, you guys would be able to relate to, which is I don't totally fit in here because I've got this background and a funny language and a big nose and a funny name. And, you know, but if you threw me at any point in the last, uh, uh, you know, a uh, few decades of my life into the streets of Mashhad, you know, especially when I was a kid, it'd be like, who's this guy? He doesn't fit in here, you know? So, so who are we, right? Where, where, where do we end up? Where do we belong? Yeah, so we are Iranian in diaspora, and that's we have to accept that that is our nation. I mean, one of the biggest, I mean, there are a lot of festivals. Tirgon happens, you know, there are a lot of festivals that they try to represent Iran. But the reality is that when we refer to that name, we are suddenly consciously or unconsciously subscribing to a national identity that it is actually quite relative even for Iranian history. Yes, there was an empire, but a court is a court. You know, a Khorasani is a Khorasani. You know, a Mazandarani is a Mazandarani. It's just like they have their own subculture and that's how it was and that's how it is. And this idea that, oh, we're going to have an Iranian festival, well, which Iran are you talking about? Hmm. You know, it's, it becomes a very important question to kind of ponder upon. It's also interesting for me, like, for example, you look at, you know, Kehan Kalhor, you know, one of our treasures. He's a, he's a national treasure, right? It always bothers me when, when I see Iranians post, Iranian musician Kehan Kalhor, why can't you say Kurdish Iranian? We say I'm Iranian Canadian or I'm uh, Iranian American, you know, why why do you have to erase their their because they don't actually if you ask Kehan, he's a friend of ours, if you ask Kehan, he will tell you I'm Kurdish. He's not gonna tell you I'm Iranian. So so we allow ourselves within our own communities to erase that in one another. In terms of the to answer your question about this lady you spoke to uh, you, that lady yeah. you were speaking yeah. about, you know, I don't um 
I don't understand that mindset uh, other than, than, you know, with, without knowing what kind of lived experience she has yes, had. Yes, she may, she may have had certain lived experiences that have contributed to her arriving at this final analysis of what Iranians are. But, you know, despite what I have been through in my life, I neither hate Muslims, I neither hate... I mean, I don't... I, I just... For me, I, I, I just observe. Mm-hmm. I observe and I try to take things and make them better. This is what I was put on earth to do as an artist. Take something, transform it, and make, turn it into something that serves others. For me, that kind of point of view of this woman serves nobody. It doesn't even serve herself because I can't imagine to walk through life and hate an aspect of myself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because that's really what it's coming down to. There's something inside of you that you wish you wasn't there. Well, it's it's disappointment too, right? It's disappointment, and and a lot of us have that disappointment. We we do. Uh, I mean, uh, Ramin, I I one hundred percent agree that it's not our dominion to try and change. You know, it's 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 the people of Iran to change what to to decide what Iran should be in terms of the nation state, the people who are there. Um, but but the fact that I feel an umbilical cord to this place that you know that where my DNA comes from, where my parents were born, where 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 people grew up, where I uh, th- that's also real. I mean, I don't have to i i can't pretend that that doesn't exist because i tried that already in my teenage years <laughs> and yeah. it felt pretty lonely right yes no i mean my my son iman is and he, he even himself consider himself iranian and he's you know he was even born here but the the reality that the reason i'm saying that is because it's something that we have arrived uh, as we are performing more and we are also taking uh, uh, opportunities to conduct workshops at universities and one thing that we had come to terms in order to be able to move forward within our own lives in, in, it is that we have to take in consideration the living experience you cannot contribute or adopt if you do not have a living experience of of the struggle, the joy, the web, the, the dynamics that takes in a society. And if I am not living in Iran, therefore I don't have the same shared experience. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you feel, Gian, but but for me, I can tell you honestly, um, not so much in LA because everything is so spread out and we have very few um, Iranian friends who sort of we, we relate to. Um, but in Montreal, I would meet a lot of Iranians coming fresh from Iran, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And um, I can tell you honestly, one of the things we struggled with, both of us, is that we couldn't even relate to the Iranians that were coming. It was almost like they were coming from another completely different country. You know, it's there's even this this almost unbridgeable gap between the Iran that we grew up in and the Iran that that they are living in 
post-revolution. Does that, I don't know if you ever feel uh, that way when you're I, speaking I, to I, the- I would say yes, yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, of course, we have completely different uh, life trajectories and, and, and cultural experiences. On the other hand, again, we have this unspoken um, uh, shorthand, uh, you know, a cultural, uh, maybe it's partly language, shorthand that where I, uh, I can feel completely alien to someone who's just arrived here, you know, a year ago. And at the same time, I can feel all kinds of ways in which I identify with them in a way that I wouldn't somebody who's not Iranian. So I, I think both those things are yeah. true. Absolutely. I mean, I still see a picture of Esfahan and, you know, my heart breaks because there is a, some nostalgic fi- feeling. It invokes something. I see a picture of a Persian dampai and I get emotional. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, what you said... You forget uh, uh, Esfahan. You went to, like, architecture. I'm no, like, you know, no, I see dampai and I start crying. You know, these are the pillars, you know. Off the off the Listen, you... you um, uh, Azam, you said something a moment ago about how you want to, um, your interest is in, in creating positive change. And, and on, on your last, the album that you put out last year called Phantoms, um, there's a song called Hope. Um, and it has and, everything but hope in it. <laughs> right, right. Well, actually, you, you did say it's about the, the rise of ethno-nationalism and extremism around the world, and you want to address that. Let's just play a little bit of, of hope. This is Azam Ali from her solo record last year. from Azam Ali's solo record. I know Loga Ramin Tokian also performed on that record or performs with her when she plays some of these songs. That's the song Hope, a little taste of the song Hope. What can you tell us about that song, Azam? Well, it's. uh, I know the title is a bit misleading because everyone thought it was going to be about hope, but it's really about the loss of hope. And it seems to be a continuing theme in my life, the sort of gaining and losing hope. Um, I'm sure every, every immigrant has that. And a, a lot of the song is about the record, actually. A lot of it, is, it was really about the rise of ethno-nationalism and nativism and, you know, all just the direction that we are moving in America, it's, it's incredibly frightening for me. And, um, and it's, that, that song is really about the loss of hope, but I hope that at the end of the day, um, there is some hope in there. But it's m- much more, like I said, it's, it's, a, it's, a very obser- it's an observation of what's happening around me. Yeah, you're right in the thick of it in terms of extremism and ethno-nationalism now. Um, 
You, you guys both, uh, before I let you go, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you've both been involved in a, a lot of work in terms of film and television soundtracks. I mentioned some of it uh, in in the uh, introduction in terms of working on that Shahnameh project, the Fe- Feathers of Fire. Um, as I'm you saying on the 300 soundtrack, and there was some controversy associated with that. Ramin, you worked on the Game of Thrones soundtrack, which makes you a hero in my eyes, of course, <laughs> because I'm a huge fan. Um, it, this seems like it's all coming together. From what I understand, there's a new uh, Niaz album that is in the works, and it's going to be kind of a, a multidisciplinary multimedia project of some sort. Who, who wants to tell me about that? Please start with For well, Me. Yeah. So what we did is actually in 2016, uh, <laughs> in 2016 when we released uh, Fourth Light, which was our last album, we already had done it with the intent of uh, creating a multidisciplinary stage production for it. And fortunately, at the time, we still were living in Montreal, and we did that in collaboration with uh, Jérôme Delapierre, who's an incredible visual artist. So that album, uh, all you know, was m- done with that in mind. But it was still kind of th- the first one, first time that we were doing this, and you know, we were kind of kind of struggling of how to do it properly. Although that it is very successful now that, that that show as we you know kind of perform it in the performing arts series, and we felt like as a follow up to that now we want to do it again with Jerome, but do it kind of from the infancy, kind of involve him, and uh, build uh, build the show. I love it. And in the meantime, if, if all of that wasn't enough, uh, uh, Ramin, you've been working on a solo record as well, or maybe mm. you've completed it. Is Ceremony part of the new record? No. Oh, because I love Ceremony. I wanted to go out on that. I just think uh, it's... Uh, but, uh, no, Azam and I actually were fortunate enough. We were working, uh, producing songs, uh, original compositions for Facebook for the last uh, year and a half. Oh. Uh, they have a library of music, of original music. And we were commissioned as composers to produce uh, work for them. So Ceremony is one of the songs that I wrote. She wrote a lot of songs. I wrote a lot of songs and some songs we wrote together. Uh, there was Ceremony is one of the ones that I, I wrote for that, compi- for that uh, library, which is uh, actually for people. It's free to download. You can, anybody can go grab it. And yeah, I, f- I mean, I found it on Spotify. But it, it, do you want me to go out on another song? No, go on. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Because his new album is not out yet. Okay. And no one has heard it. So, so it's, but it might as well go out on one of his compositions. It's beautiful. I, I really want people to hear it. Listen, it has been such a pleasure. It has been, uh, uh, it's been an education. I have learned a, a lot about you two, uh, both together and separately. And um, I feel very fortunate to have spent this, uh, this time with you. And I'm so glad that we get to talk about all of your musical adventures and and share some of your music. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. And I really want to thank you for this initiative. And um, I know that it it will be such an important part of our legacy as uh, Iranian, as an Iranian diaspora people. And it's something that will remain for our children and future generations to remember what it is that we experience. So thank you for archiving our history. That means so much. You said it so well. I, I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you for this, Azam. Thank you, Ramin John. Thank, thank you, you so Azam. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The dynamic duo, 
behind Niaz, Azam Ali, Logar Ramin Turkian. They both joined me from Los Angeles today. We're going to go out on some music, as promised, from Ramin, a song called Ceremony. Obviously, you can find Niaz at a friendly music streaming service near you. If you're listening to us on Spotify or iTunes, just pop over to their music after you've finished with Rook. Easy as pie. This is full time for Rook for today. The hub of all things Rook, our website is rookmedia.com. Thank you for your support and for sharing our content, telling people about it. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, Fabulous Keon, Producer Susan, Ponta the Artist, Aray Mertod, English Muhammad, Savvy Roham. Check out the new Rook Read at rookmedia.com by blogger Negin. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gameshi. Talk to you Thursday. Mizun Bashin.